On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. Sounds like an Irish wedding, doesn't it? But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. Last week, Pastor Pip helped us to begin a new series entitled Signs of Life, Symbols of Hope as we walk through the seven signs in John's gospel. He reminded us that uh, the word that is used to describe this activity, this remarkable event, in verse um, 11, Jesus did this, the first of his signs, um, is a word that stands for signpost or announcement or declaration or evidence or token or mark or pledge. And there are seven of these that we will be looking at over the course of the next few weeks together as we reflect on why these signs are there and what they mean, the first that we're looking at in a little bit more detail is this one, the first sign, described like that in John chapter 2, verse 11. Why this one? Why did Jesus start? Why does John start his story with Jesus turning water into wine? Why didn't he start his story with Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead? Because in Jewish theology, you can move events around. John does that, and the other disciples do that as they write of Jesus' story. For example, John has the clearing of the temple by Jesus, which happened at the end of his ministry, at the beginning of his gospel. <laughs> so why didn't John start with a really obvious sign? Have you ever thought about that? What does this sign mean? As Jesus turns water into wine, why does John start with that? Why doesn't he start with the healing of the man who was lame or the healing with the man that was blind or the feeding of the 5,000 or walking on water or raising Lazarus from the dead? One of the ones that feels a bit more exciting than this or has a bit clearer meaning because actually, when you stop to think about what this points to, it's, it's, it's actually quite difficult. What does it mean? 
Why did he, do you think? Don't shout at me. But in your head, why does he turn water into wine? What, 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 what is the significance of that? And why is it so important that John puts it at the very beginning of his gospel? It's a really difficult question to answer until you start to stop and to think about it. Why didn't I move away from this this morning and talk about God who comforts us in sorrow or God who is close in heartbreak? I thought about it. But the reason I didn't is because this is such a powerful sign. This that begins Jesus' ministry in John's gospel, if we can get a hold of it, contains all the comfort that we need. It contains the strength that we need. It contains the hope that we need. The underlying messaging in this will lift every broken heart, will comfort every person who is captured in grief today, will give joy and purpose and meaning to anyone who will allow the reality of it to sink into our hearts and souls and respond to God. I became a Christian 33 years ago and it was this passage that was preached the day I became a Christian. It was hearing what this meant that transformed my life, that turned me around, that made me realize that there was something to live for that was better and more beautiful and more purposeful and more powerful than what I had experienced previously. There are many things in this passage that I don't have time to go into this morning, and I don't think that this exposition of them is the most important place to do it. For example, why does Mary ask Jesus to do something? She definitely sounds like an Irish mother that comes and says, they're running out of the wine, you're gonna to have to do something. And why does Jesus say to her, woman, what's that got to do with you? My time has not yet come. And then he does something. Sounds like he says one thing to Mary and then does something else. I don't have time to go into that. I might one day with you. But take comfort from the fact that if Jesus, if Jesus says no to his mother, then he might sometimes say no to you. It's not a symbol of him not loving you. It's not a symbol of him not wanting to give you everything that is good for you or right. It's just that sometimes there is a mystery and I, with all of my explanation that I could bring to you of Jesus saying no to his mother here, I don't, I don't have the full answer. I don't think anybody does. Secondly, I'm not going to go into the elephant in the room that Jesus turned water into wine. He didn't turn it into grape juice as some people want to suggest. He turned water into wine. And I know that many churches, including our church and many others, have a very strong position on alcohol consumption. And I accept that and I abide by that. But I want to remind you that we live according to the scriptures, not according to the traditions of lots of people. So be careful that you don't become a legalist around things like this. Be careful that you don't read into the Bible something that isn't there. Jesus turned water into wine. I have a remarkable story that I could tell you about this that I'm not going to, and it is very funny. Oh, some of you want me to tell you it, do you? Okay, so many years ago, <laughs> many years ago, I had a friend, well, he's not, yeah, I had a friend um, who was involved in ministry and was desperate to preach. He was ministering in a place in Kent. And... Um, his senior pastor, he was a youth pastor, his senior pastor came and said to him, I'm going to give you a chance to preach. And he was like, 
I'm so excited I'm going to get to preach. And the senior pastor said, we're going to do a series on the signs in John's gospel. And you're going to preach on the first one. He said, great. And he went home and he said to his wife, I'm going to preach on the signs in John's gospel and I get to preach on the first one. And his wife said to him, this was a very, very teetotal church. And his wife said to him, do you realize that the first sign in John's gospel is the turning of water into wine? And he said, oh no, what am I going to do? She said, well, you're just going to have to preach the passage. So that's what he did. Now, this is the funny bit of the story. Honestly, this is true. The senior, the senior minister was called David Beer. <laughs> and the senior deacon was called Harry Cork. True story. And my friend's catchline, not a catchline that I'm going to use, but my friend's catchline in the sermon was, uh, the kingdom of God is a party and the drinks are on Jesus. Now, that's not what I'm going to use as my catchline. You can all breathe out. But at the end of the sermon, Harry Cork, the senior deacon, alongside David Beer, the lead pastor, came to speak to my friend and said, you know, that's not right. You shouldn't have preached that. That's not right. And my friend said, look, it, it's what the passage says. And he explained what he'd meant and so forth and so on. And Harry Cork said, well, I'm not very happy about it. This church is teetotal. You shouldn't be mentioning wine, let alone preaching on Jesus, turning water into wine. <laughs> and my friend said, look, Harry, um, it wasn't me that wrote the Bible. I didn't do it. You're going to have to take it up with Jesus. It was him that turned water into wine. And here's the line. Harry Cork said, well, he might have done, but he was very young at the time. <laughs> I think I would have more problems with that theology than what happens in this remarkable event. So I'm not going to comment on, on that. Other than to say this, I think that in a culture like Northern Ireland, um, a culture which is marked by alcoholism, we must be very careful and how we approach this whole question. We must approach it with grace, but we must approach it with concern and with a real awareness of the people around us trying to make sure that we do not become a stumbling block for other people, but at the same time, not becoming legalists. And all I will say is this, don't ever dare, brothers or sisters, say to somebody, if you drink, you're not a Christian. That is biblically incorrect. There is no other than this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen? Amen. And there are lots of other things I could say to people in leadership positions, people about how they behave publicly and how they behave when they're around somebody who has a problem with alcohol, and you wouldn't be surprised by any of those. But that is not the purpose of this passage, nor is it the purpose of my sermon this morning. But what I do want to do is reflect on why this sign is here and why it matters. And I'm going to do that through two different lenses. The first is I want to bring you three ideas that are tied up into this turning of water into wine. And the second is I want to say something slightly more theological about that in terms of the whole of the Bible's story. The three things, the first lens, if you like, that I want you to look at this miracle through is a lens that has three sections. Joy, life, and hope. When Jesus turns water into wine at this wedding, he is doing something that the people of Israel had longed for for many, many years. 
wine within the context of Jewish thinking and Jewish reflection was a symbol of joy. It was a symbol of life. And it was a symbol of hope. I'd like you to turn back to two passages in the Old Testament with me, if you're able to. And don't worry if you can't find them. I can read them to you. Joel chapter 3, verse 18. And Amos chapter 9, verse 13. Both are important and little known verses for why this matters. In Joel chapter 3, verse 18, looking to a day when God will move in power, when all things will be put right, when hope and joy and peace and life will flow from Jerusalem and from God's presence, here is what we read in Joel chapter 3. I'll read from verse 17. So you shall know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. On that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine. The hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. A fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the vade shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate place, because of the violence done to the people of Judah, in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, and I will not clear the guilty, for the Lord dwells in Zion." Amos chapter 9, verse 13. Again, a promise of restoration of the kingdom. The time is surely coming, says the Lord, when the one who plows shall overtake the one who reaps and the treader of grapes, the one who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them upon their land and they shall never again be plucked up out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. The promise, the picture that Isaiah and Amos and, um, and Joel in, in my readings brings to the people of Judah is a promise of God restoring joy. Taking what has been desolate and giving it joy. Taking what has been broken and fixing it. Taking what has been laid waste and making it an abundant, green, beautiful space. That's what Jesus' ministry does. That's what Jesus came to announce. If you go to Luke chapter four in the beginning of his ministry in the Nazareth Manifesto, which is quoting Isaiah chapter 61, he declares that the spirit of God is upon him to set captives free, to open blind eyes, to release those that are in chains, to give hope to the hopeless and to give comfort to those that mourn. This miracle, this sign is a pointing away from the desolation that Judah was facing, the desolation that people were facing into a hope that only God can give and a joy that comes when he is present. By turning water into wine, Jesus is announcing something. He's announcing that this promise of Amos, this promise of Joel, the long-awaited Messiah of the Old Testament has arrived. He has come with his power. He's come to initiate a new era. He's come to bring change. He's come to bring something to people. Remember that those that were listening to this were under the thumb of Rome. They were controlled and manipulated and held as a vassal state by the Roman Empire. They weren't allowed to do anything without their permission. And in the middle of this, Jesus stands and turns water into wine. What a, what a message. 
of joy. Some of us feel as if our lives are marked with sorrow today. Jesus can take our sorrow. He can take our heartbreak. He can take our pain. He can take our loss. He can take our questions. He can take our uncertainties. He can take everything that seems to be controlling us and in the midst of it, release joy. I don't know if you've ever experienced it. I have experienced it many times, including this morning. Standing in a gathering with God's people, with my heart breaking, tears flowing down my face, at the same time as declaring I trust in God. The two things can sit beside one another in our souls and in our hearts and in our spirits. I wonder if you know the joy of God. I wonder if you know the, 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 the shift that happens when you know that he is near. The assurance that comes when you know that he is present. You can stare into utter darkness and utter despair and not be consumed by it. But only he can bring that. Church can't bring it. Only God can bring that through Jesus Christ. It is inexplicable that you can be in the midst of heartbreak and no joy. And yet that's what God gives us. That's what Jesus' ministry initiates for all who will follow him. Wine is also a symbol of life for the Jewish people. And just a few chapters later in John's gospel, Jesus would say this, the thief talking about the accuser comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. But I have come, he says to his followers, that you might have life and that you might have it to the full. Now here's the thing, sisters and brothers. Many of us hear that promise and assume that what it means is never facing trials, never going through heartbreaks, never going through difficulties, never having to find ourselves in tricky spots. When Jesus says, I have come that you might have life in the full, he is describing life that looks like his life. And his full life had both sorrow and joy in it. His full life was a life that was crafted in a major key and in a minor key. I want nothing to do with the Christianity that says you have to pretend that nothing ever goes wrong in your life. I don't want to be part of a congregation that runs away from the minor key of sorrow and struggle and heartbreak. It doesn't do anybody any good. It doesn't do you any good. It doesn't do anybody any good. The full life that Jesus Christ promises is a life with all the possibilities of beauty and grace and tenderness and kindness and all the challenges of pain and sorrow and farewell and heartbreak. But full life involves both. And what God does in Jesus Christ is take both and transform them. He takes the joy of celebration and transforms it into something deeper and more beautiful. He takes the sorrow and the heartbreak of pain and loss and transforms it into something that can work in our lives in a profound way. Many of us aren't willing to let that happen. But Jesus didn't come to give you an easy life. He came to make sense of the life that you live. He came to stand in the middle of it and say, no matter what happens to you, I am here. 
No matter what you go through, no matter who you lose, no matter how many heartbreaks you face, no matter how many questions rise in your soul, there is life in me. Not existence. Not just working from day to day, not just getting through it, not just somehow managing, but really living. Can you show me anybody who has really lived who hasn't also really suffered? Many Christians want all that Jesus can bring as a positive, but aren't willing to embrace any of the negative aspects of living lives. It doesn't work that way. I listened to a podcast recently of a girl that was talking about the difference between um, anointing and gifting. And one of the things that she said is, and I'm still reflecting on it, that what we need is men and women who carry God's anointing, not just as gifting. And anointing comes through crushing. Squeezing, pain, heartbreak, uncertainty, sorrow. Show me somebody who has fulfilled an anointed ministry in God's family. And I will show you a woman or a man who has had to walk through the road of suffering. Many of us want gifting, but not anointing. What Jesus brings is the wine of real living. To know that no matter what, he is present. To know that the pain of our loss can be swallowed by the presence of his mercy. To know that there is hope even in the darkest moments, joy, life, and hope. In verses 7 to 12 of John chapter 2, we read of this remarkable encounter when the um, steward of the wedding drinks the water that has been turned into wine and he says to Jesus and to the groom, people keep the cheap wine until the end. You've given us the best wine at the end. Why did you do that? Well, of course he didn't, did he? He probably had run out of the cheap wine as well. But the message is clear. The further on you go with Jesus, the further on you go in relationship with him, the better it gets. I'm going to say something which sounds trite, but it isn't trite, it's true. The best days are always ahead of us as Christians. They're not somewhere in the past. Not for a church, not for a family, not for an individual. Hope draws us forward because the best days in God's family are always ahead. The best days in your life and in mine lie ahead. Why do I know that? Because there is a day coming. I don't know when it will be. None of us do. But there is a day coming when our faith will give way to sight. When our sorrows and our struggles and our suffering and our pain and our heartbreak and our loss and our uncertainty will be no more. If we live in the reality of that, then we are letting the wine of God's promises flow into the present. We're letting what we are going to become flow into who we are and change the way we approach life. That's not twee. That's why the Bible says to those that are mourning and suffering, you mourn not as others who are without hope. 
It's why it tells us to hold on, believing that God hasn't finished with us yet. It's why the most often quoted line from me here and in other places is this, God wins. The end of our story is never death. The end of our heartbreak, the end of our lives is never heartbreak. It's never sorrow. It's never suffering. It's never struggle. The end of the Christian's life is hope. Hope that God will fulfill his promises. Hope that God has not finished with us yet. Hope that in the mystery of his plans and his purposes, he will explain all things. Joy, life, and hope. The wine that Jesus uses as a metaphor, the turning of this water into wine, happened at a wedding. And the idea of wine permeates and weddings permeate the whole of the Bible. Wine speaks of the power and the presence of God's Spirit, who is described as wine in other parts of the Bible. It speaks of God's new covenant, his, his breaking into history through Jesus Christ and breaking open all of the fears and anxieties of Israel. It speaks of moving from existing to living. It's interesting, isn't it, that the water is in jars for purification and it becomes wine from verse six to verse nine. Full to the brim in verse seven. Jesus didn't come to help us to exist, to help us to manage, to help us to muddle through. He came to give us life in all of its complexity and all of its variance. And the wedding picture here, this first miracle, turning water into wine. You can't help but think that at the end of all things, we will be invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And we will be united with him forever. In Luke chapter five, Jesus says to his followers, you don't put new wine into old wineskins. I think many of us kind of come to living faith in Jesus Christ and then fall into legalism. Fall into fear, fall into externals, fall into judgmentalism, fall into thinking we have to have all the answers. But let God's wine, let his grace and his mercy and his presence and his power transform you. The second lens that I want to lay before you is more of a theological one. I want to build for you four pictures about what happens in this. Here in this turning of water into wine, first of all, is a confirmation to all of the Jewish people, to all those that read this story from a Jewish heritage. This is Jesus saying, I am the one you've been longing for. All of your yearning is satisfied in me. All of your questions are answered in me. All of your aspirations are met in me. I am the one that the whole of your scriptures has pointed to. Confirmation. Jesus is who God says he is. He is the only way. He is the only truth and he is the only life. Secondly, there is consolation here. Consolation for the broken. Consolation for those that are journeying through heartbreak. Consolation for those that feel uncertain, that those, for those that do not want to have their lives marked by some kind of veneer Christianity. And many of you are here today or watching online. 
And you don't need some kind of tin plate optimism. You need the consolation that God's presence is with you. That he will not abandon you. That he honors what he says. I will never leave you. Here is that consolation. Jesus in turning water into wine says, I can take your life and turn it from existence into meaning. From shallowness into depth. I can do something in you that will console you no matter what else happens. Thirdly, here is a celebration of his presence, a celebration of his life, a celebration of who he is, a celebration of what he can do in us. And lastly, here is consummation. That one day, the struggles that you are facing, the challenges and the heartbreaks that you are carrying will no longer be present We too often build our lives theologically around what we are going through rather than who we are. I invite you today with all of the uncertainty of it, I invite you to step into who you are, to step into what Christ has done, not how you feel, not your circumstances, not what's going on around you, but step into Christ into his fulfillment of all that God requires that you might be his friend. Step into the consolation and the comfort that he brings. Step into the fact that even in the midst of despair, you can have hope and step into the reality that the end of your story is never despair, it's hope. And I know how hard that message is to hear this morning, but it is the heartbeat of Christian faith. God will not abandon us. He will walk with us. Jesus turns water into wine. Very few times is wine mentioned in the context of Jesus' ministry. The most significant is at the beginning and at the end. Because about three, three and a half years after this, he closed the door in a room upstairs in Jerusalem. He poured wine. And he invited his disciples to drink it. And he said, when you drink this, remember my blood that was shed for you. The beginning and the end of his ministry. Wine. Wine that speaks of hope, life, joy, purpose, consolation, celebration, confirmation, consummation. And wine that speaks of love. And sacrifice and promise and presence. I wonder how many of us don't feel like being in church today. Or don't feel like celebrating. But He has given us life. I wonder how many of us are just existing. He can give us meaning and purpose beyond anything that anyone else can give. Let's pray together.
On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and gave thanks and said that was his body that was broken for us. In the same manner, after supper, he took a cup and he drank from it, gave it to his disciples and said that the cup signified his blood that was shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins. He invites us to eat bread and drink wine to remember his body and his blood broken and shed for us. And to remember his promise that he is with us. And that his sacrifice has done all that is required for us to know grace and life. This morning I remind you that as we eat bread and drink wine or drink juice, we remember somebody who was acquainted with sorrow and grief. The Bible describes him as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He knows how we are feeling today. You don't need to put all of that pain or heartbreak to one side. I invite you to bring it with you. And to let it be your offering to Jesus today. Give him it. I invite you to lean in to Jesus Christ. And to let his grace and his presence bring hope, comfort and strength to you. If you're not yet a Christian, there's an opportunity now for you to invite Jesus Christ to become the Lord of your life. Confess your need of him. Tell him that you are sorry for all the mistakes that you've made. Recognize his cross and his mercy and ask him to guide you from this moment on. If you've been wandering away from him, ask him to draw you back. If you're angry, tell him. If you have uncertainty, tell him. If you're broken, give it to him. If you are joyful, give him your joy. Whatever situation you find yourself in today, offer him your life. As we eat bread and drink wine. We come to you, Lord, asking for your grace, for your mercy, and for your strength. And in the simple act of faith and believing, would you feed us and strengthen us? In Jesus' name, amen.